You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. Would you take your Bible, please, and turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Gospel of Mark, second book in the New Testament, chapter 4. It is an absolute honor for me to be here with you this weekend. Uh, So thankful and grateful for the invitation from Pastor Robbie and from your elders here in this church to to spend this time with you opening God's word. And I know that you already know this, but this church has an amazing gift from God in your senior pastor, in your staff, in your elders, and uh, just so thankful for uh, the friendship and the relationship that exists between our churches. And I'm a huge fan of Pastor Robbie and Jill and all the work work that the Lord continues to do through them. And uh, you don't need me to tell you this, but Pastor Robbie has been gifted in such an exceptional way by God to proclaim his word and And knowing that this church is so well-fed on God's word every single weekend, no matter who's standing up here, knowing that, uh, I am both very humbled and very thankful for the opportunity to come this weekend and open God's word uh, with you. I also want to say hi to you from all of your friends at Harvest Brantford. And uh, when you guys planted us uh, two years, three months, and three days ago, to be exact, um, I don't think any of us could have predicted uh, the work that God would do there in such a short period of time. God has been so good to us. And uh, he has blessed us, and he has been far better to us than uh, we deserve, and uh, we give him all the glory for that. And so I, I just want to thank you for your prayers, for your support, your encouragement. And I would also ask you, if you could, just to pray for us in the days ahead as we uh, continue to move forward. The Christian school where we currently meet in Brantford is planning to do a major expansion project on their facility coming up in the spring. And so that means that we need to relocate, and at this particular point, we don't know where that is, but the Lord does. And so we're putting our confidence in him. And as you think of us over the next little while, if you could pray for us regarding that, we would be very, very grateful for that. All of that said, I'm super excited to be here with you this weekend and to open God's word. So let's do that right now. Bibles are open to Mark chapter 4. We're going to start reading at verse 35, and we'll make our way down through to the end of the chapter in verse 41. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. Mark writes, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? All right, quick show of hands. How many of us here are somewhat familiar with this story of Jesus calming the sea? Right? We've read this before. We've heard it before. Maybe you remember it from all of those years ago in Sunday school class when your Sunday school teacher pulled out that sweet flannel graph board. You remember that? And, and there's Jesus going up and down and up and down in the storm, right? And we remember this story because this is one of the more powerful, one of the more well-known miracles that Jesus ever performed. And I don't know if you noticed this as we read through this passage But for the amount of time that Mark takes to tell us this story, there is a ton of detail that's packed into here. Did you notice that? Look again with me, starting at verse 35. Mark writes, On that day when evening had come, you need to know here that everything in chapter 4 up to this particular point has all happened in the same day. 
Jesus has just finished teaching the disciples and the crowds about the parable of the sower. That's when, Jesus, or when uh, the farmer walks around and he scatters the seed and it falls onto all the different kinds of soil. And then Jesus goes on and he teaches about not putting your lamp under a basket. He teaches about how the seeds grow. He teaches about the mustard seed. It's been a long and intense day of teaching for Jesus. And after all of that has happened, Jesus now climbs into the boat with the disciples. Mark goes on into verse 36, and he says, They left the crowd, and they took him. And here's an interesting detail. Mark says, They took him just as he was. Remember, this has been a very long day. Jesus has been teaching. He's been serving. He's been helping. He's been healing. He's been doing all of these things. And and Jesus is weary. He's tired. And maybe you can picture in your mind, he just kind of lumbers into the back of the boat now with the disciples to go across the lake. And it's here that we catch even just this little glimpse of the humanity of Jesus Christ. And Mark says then at the end of verse 36, there were other boats there too. He goes on into verse 37. He says, a great windstorm arose. Waves were pounding into the boat. The boat was filling up with water, and then we get to verse 38, and Mark says here that Jesus was in the stern of the boat. Now, for all of you who are uh, maybe more of a land lover, and maybe you get a little bit seasick when you get onto the water, and you like to be where it's a little more stable, a little more balanced, the stern of the boat is the back of the boat. So Mark is saying here that Jesus was in the back of the boat, and he was asleep, And then Mark includes a detail here that Matthew 8 and Luke 8 do not include in their telling of the very same story. Mark says here that Jesus was asleep on a cushion. This passage is packed with so many details. And we need to keep in mind here that Mark was not there when all of this happened. The things that Mark writes in his gospel are based on the eyewitness accounts of Peter. And so Peter's telling this to Mark. Mark's writing this down in the gospel. And it's very likely that Peter was there in the boat with Jesus when it looks like this storm is about to do them in. And so now we need to step back from all of this and ask ourselves for a second, why does all of this detail matter? Why do we need to pay attention to all of those details in this story? And all of these details matter because this is telling us that this is not just another great story about another great guy who did another great thing. All of these details are telling us that this is a real story about a real Savior who has real power over real storms. This is Mark telling us all over again in his gospel that Jesus Christ really is the Son of God, that Jesus Christ really is the Messiah, that Jesus Christ really is the one who has been sent by God to provide full and final and eternal and real forgiveness for all of those who will place their faith in him. That's what this story is about, and that's why these details matter. We need to keep in mind that all of this is unfolding right now on the Sea of Galilee. And as you can see from this map up on the screen here, the Sea of Galilee is located up here in the northern region where much of the ministry of Jesus took place. And and as you can see from its context on the map, the Sea of Galilee is not really that big. The Sea of Galilee is more like a, a freshwater lake, and at its widest points, it measured about 21 kilometers long and about 12 kilometers wide, and at its deepest point, it was about 150 feet deep. But what makes the Sea of Galilee so fascinating is that it sits about 700 feet below sea level. So that means then that it's surrounded by these small mountains and these hills that go almost all the way around the Sea of Galilee itself, which basically makes it the perfect place for the perfect storm. So you can just imagine this in your mind. It's almost like the Sea of Galilee is like this giant bowl that's almost filled to the very top with water. And the thing is, the 
cool air would come down from the top over the mountains and it would bump into the warm air when it got to the bottom. And, and when that happened, it created this sensation where all of the wind would start to mix and mix and mix and it would just create chaos on the lake. It would be a little bit like if you were to take a whisk and put a whisk in a bowl and you start mixing the ingredients in the bowl, right? It creates chaos in the bowl. And that's kind of the same sensation that was happening when the cool air would come down, bump into the warm air at the bottom, it starts to mix and mix and mix and it creates all of this chaos on the lake right now and, and eventually that wind would just sweep out over the water and down through the valley and it would create immense damage wherever it went. And if all of that isn't bad enough, Jesus and the disciples are not now caught in one of those storms and all they have to protect themselves is this tiny little fishing boat. Back in 1986, a first century fishing boat was discovered near the Sea of Galilee and it would have looked a little bit something like this. Uh, this boat was about 27 feet long, about seven and a half feet wide, and it had the capacity to hold about 15 people inside of it. You can see that it has a mast and a sail in the middle. It has oars on the side for paddling as well. And it's thought that this is the kind of boat that Jesus and the disciples are climbing into, and they're about to battle this raging storm in. But here's the thing. When the disciples got into the boat, everything was fine. Everything was going the way that it should. But then all of a sudden, this storm comes out of nowhere. And they have no chance to get ready. They have no opportunity to put a plan in place to try and weather the storm. And all they have to hang on to is this tiny little fishing boat. And we all go through our own storms too, don't we? We all go through pain and suffering and trials in our own life. We go through uh, circumstances. We maybe even go through seasons of our entire life where, where life gets really, really hard for us. I was 21 years old, laying in a hospital bed for 10 days with a blood clot that my doctors couldn't explain. 10 years later, I found myself back in the hospital again, this time for two and a half weeks, with a blood clot in my lung that my doctors still couldn't totally explain. Somewhere in between those two events that spanned about 10 years, I remember my wife and I sitting in our doctor's office across the desk from him, and, and he told us in absolutely no uncertain terms whatsoever that we would never be able to have kids of our own. And yet God, by his grace, would allow us then to adopt three kids from different parts of the world that have totally changed our lives in absolutely amazing ways. So thankful for that. But we all have our storms, right? We all go through difficult seasons of our life and, and sometimes the storms that we go through come out of nowhere and we have no opportunity to get ready. We have no chance to put a plan in place to try and weather the storm and many of those situations are so hard and sometimes we handle those situations well but many times we don't know how to handle those situations at all and there are times where we go through those storms in our life and we are white knuckling the whole way and all we have to hang on to is the little bit that we can see right in front of us. I mean, just try and picture for a minute what the disciples must be going through right now. Try and place yourself in the seat right next to them in the boat and try and think of what they're thinking. Try and feel what they're feeling in that moment. They are terrified. They're afraid. They have no idea how this is going to go. All they know in that moment is that their boat's going up and then their boat's coming back down. And it's going up and it's coming back down. And they have no idea how long this is going to last. They have no idea how they're going to get out of this. And the one thing that Jesus teaches them in that moment, in the middle of their storm, is the one thing that you and I need to hear today. I can have faith in the face of fear. I can have faith 
in the face of fear. You can have faith in the face of fear. Now, if you're anything like me, and if I was sitting where you are sitting right now, I'd be thinking to myself, okay, man, that sounds good, but how? How do I have faith in the face of fear? How do I have faith when the cancer is too painful? How do I have faith when the depression is too deep? How do I have faith when the miscarriage is too much? How do I have faith and not be afraid when I don't know when this storm is ever going to come to an end? I was just talking to a lady this past week, and she was telling me about the life-altering storm that she's going through in her own life right now. And she said it's been going on for 10 years, and she still can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. How do you have faith when that's your storm? I want to show you from the text this morning three ways to have faith in the face of fear. Three ways to have faith faith in the face of fear. And and understand that as we go through this this morning, these are kind of like life jackets, okay? And uh, maybe you're going through a storm right now and you are doing absolutely everything you possibly can just to keep your head above the water. And if that's you, these are like life jackets from God's word that I just want to throw out to you this morning to help you in the middle of your storm. Three ways to have faith in the face of fear. Here's the first. Take Jesus at his word. When you're in the middle of a storm that's raging all around you, and you don't know when it's going to stop. Take Jesus at his word. And, and maybe you're sitting here right now and you're saying to yourself, okay, but, but what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, take a look again at verse 35. Mark writes, chapter 4, verse 35, he says, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. What's interesting about this story is that it wasn't the disciples who went to Jesus and said, okay, Jesus, it's been a long day. It's been an intense day. I mean, you've spent all of your day teaching and helping and serving and healing. It's been a long day. Why don't we all just get in the boat? We'll go to the other side. We'll rest. We'll relax a little bit. That's not the way that it happened. Instead, it was Jesus who went to the disciples and said, okay, guys, now let's get into the boat and we're going to go to the other side. And what I want you to see here right off the very beginning is that Jesus purposely went with them into their storm. Just like this story begins with this point, this has to be the first thing that we think of when the storm hits in our life. Jesus goes with me into the storm. Now, true or false, Jesus knew exactly what would happen when they got out into the middle of the sea. True or false? It's true, right? Jesus knew what would happen to them when they got out into the middle of the sea. But not only that, Jesus created the sea that they were on. And Jesus knew exactly the storm that they would endure. And what this means is that Jesus Christ not only goes with them into their storm, but Jesus Christ has control of the storm itself. And the same thing is true for you and me. Not only does Jesus Christ go with us into our storm, but he has control of the storm itself. And so what that means then is that regardless of how rough the storm gets, and regardless of how long the storm lasts, If Jesus says we're going to the other side, we're going to the other side. You can take Jesus at his word. And one of the great blessings of the Christian life is that God gives us so many promises that he makes to us in his word for us as we go through the middle of a storm. And 
And I have kind of like this top 10 list of promises that God makes. And God's word is full of so many more promises, but this is like the top 10 list for me. These are promises that are really special and important to me. And, and I've shared this list with our church a couple of times. I want to share it with you this morning. And, and, you know, you can be going through the most bright, sunshiny day of your life, or you can be going through a storm right now where you can't even see your hand in front of your face. And the reality is that these promises will always be true no matter what the circumstance in your life because God is the one who makes them and God is always true. Top 10 promises. Here is number 10. He promises strength to walk. God promises us strength to walk. Isaiah 40, verses 29 to 31, he gives power to the faint, he increases the strength of the weak, and those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. Number nine, he promises that our needs will be met. Philippians 4.19, God will meet all of my needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. He promises that our needs will be met. Here's number eight. He promises guaranteed victory. I love this one. Like, love, love, love this one. Guaranteed victory. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, verses 37 to 39, he says, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, neither things present nor things to come, nor powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a promise from God. That's an amazing promise. I mean, think about this. It doesn't matter what you're going through. It doesn't matter how hard your storm is. There is coming a day when you will be in the presence of God and all of those things will be gone because you have guaranteed victory. Okay, that's number eight. If that's number eight, think about how great numbers seven through one are, right? I mean, that's pretty amazing. Here's number seven, promise that God makes, unfailing love. First Chronicles 16, verse 34, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Number six, full forgiveness. Psalm 103, verse 12. This may be one of my absolute favorite verses in all of the Bible. Psalm 103, 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just try and picture the imagery of that for a minute, okay? You can go, maybe if you're looking for the sin in your life and and you're not sure that you've been totally forgiven of your sin, you can go as far east as you want until you get to the west. And is your sin there? No, your sin's not there. So you can go as far west as you want until you get to the east. By the way, I'm a little bit directionally challenged. I have no idea if that's east and this is west, so just play along, all right? So you can go as far west as you can until you get to the east. And is your sin there? No, your sin's not there. Why is it not there? It's not there because you've been fully forgiven by the grace of God through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. That is a promise from God. Full forgiveness of your sins. Here's number five. Supernatural peace. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How many of you have been through something so painful and so hard, and you've suffered a lot, and in those moments, it's created so much anxiety and so much worry in you that you should be curled up in a ball on the floor crying about this, but you're not. Instead, you pray about the worry and the anxiety and the circumstance that you're going through, and as you pray, the supernatural peace just washes over you. And you shouldn't have that peace, and yet you do. And why do you have that peace? You have it because it's a promise from God that he will give it to you to those who trust in him for it. Supernatural peace. Here's number four. Perfect presence, Hebrews 13, verse 5. 
He says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Promise number three promises hope for today, Romans 8, 28. For God will work all things together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose in Christ Jesus. Here's promise number two. Jesus promises to return for us. John 14, verses 2 and 3, Jesus said that if he has gone to prepare a place for us, that one day he will come back and he will take us to be with himself forever. See, you got to understand that these promises are just like the tip of the iceberg, but there is one promise that will absolutely change your life forever. It's the number one promise. It is the promise of salvation. Romans 10, verse 13, the Apostle Paul says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the greatest promise of all. Jesus Christ will never turn away from those who come to him, and he will never let go of those who belong to him. These are the life-changing promises of God. And when God makes promises like this, you can absolutely take him at his word. See, when you're in the middle of a crisis or you're battling loneliness or you're trying to hold on in the midst of uncertainty in your life, God may not tell you exactly how your individual circumstance is going to end, but what he does promise to you is that he will give you supernatural peace in the middle of that circumstance so that when you try and explain that to your friends or to your family, you have no human explanation whatsoever except to say, God has done this for me and it is marvelous in my eyes. See, when God makes promises like that, you can take him at his word. Listen, don't let the voice of the storm become louder than the voice of the Lord. See, all of these promises that we've just looked at here, these 10 promises, this is all the voice of the Lord speaking into your circumstance, speaking into your storm, speaking into your life right now. That's the voice of the Lord calling out to you. So don't let the voice of the storm become louder than the voice of the Lord. Contrary to what some people might think, Jesus does not always supernaturally divert us away from the storms in our life. Sometimes he does, thankfully, but many times he does not. Instead, he walks with us right into the middle of that storm. And why does he do that? He does that because the storm has a way of teaching us the power of his promise. Look, if Jesus says we're going to the other side, we're going to the other side. And he's made an abundance of promises in his word from beginning to end to help you get from where you are right now to where he wants you to be on the other side. And you can take him at his word on every single one. Because we can have this kind of confidence in Jesus, that should motivate us then to get to Jesus early. That's point number two. Three ways that I can have faith in the face of fear. Take Jesus at his word, and now number two, get to Jesus early. Now, all in favor of honesty in church? It's a good thing, right? Um, How many of us would say in a moment of great transparency that it has sometimes taken us a little while in our storm to get to Jesus, right? I'll go first. And uh, sometimes it takes us a little, you know what I'm talking about? Like everything's going along just fine the way it is, and then all of a sudden this storm hits, it comes out of nowhere, and we do all that we can to try and fix it ourselves. And we work hard, and we try and figure it out, and it doesn't seem to matter what we do, it doesn't seem to matter how long we take, we can't fix it. And it's only when we get to the end of ourselves that we finally go to Jesus and we give the problem to him. And it seems that that's a little bit of where the disciples are right now. Look again at verse 37, and notice how things got progressively worse. Verse 37, Mark says, and a great windstorm arose. Okay, so there's step one, all right? This was supposed to be a simple trip across the lake. It would be kind of the same thing as you and I taking the same route to work every day or taking the same route to church every weekend. I mean, you could do it with your eyes closed, right? 
I don't recommend that, but, but you could. And the point is that it's familiar. This was supposed to be a simple trip across the lake, but then this great windstorm arose. Verse 37 says, and the waves were breaking into the boat. So now, this is no longer just a few gusts of wind. This has become so bad that the water now is coming over the edges of the boat. And then at the end of verse 37, Mark says, so that the boat was already filling. Do you see the progression here? It starts with something that you think you can handle. And then before long, it is totally sweeping you away. And it leaves you standing there asking yourself, how did I get here? And how did I get here so quickly? And it seems a little bit like that's where the disciples are right now. And it's at this point that they rush to the back of the boat to get Jesus. And in the desperation of trying to fix their own problem, they ask this question in verse 38. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? It's a curious question, isn't it? Teacher, do you not care that we're about to die? Do you see what's happening here? The voice of the storm is becoming louder than the voice of the Lord. And when that happens, that can sometimes confuse us in our understanding of God's care of us with God's love for us. In other words, if God doesn't take care of me in my circumstance in the way that I think he should, then that must mean that God doesn't love me. That's not true. That will never be true. That's a lie that the enemy would love for you to believe every single time. God loves you. God cares for you. And he always will. Even when the storm in your life is so bad and it's so hard and it's so painful that you can't even tell the front of the boat from the back of the boat anymore. Even when you're going through something so difficult in your life that, that you have this perception in your mind that Jesus is just asleep in the back of the boat on a cushion and he doesn't really care about what you're going through. Even there, God loves you. God cares for you. And he always will. Part of what this passage is challenging us to consider is who we really believe that Jesus is when life is hard. Do we believe that Jesus has the love and the power and the grace to get us through what we're going through? Or is our perception of him simply as someone who's in the back of our boat, asleep on a cushion as though he doesn't really care about what we're experiencing? Who do you believe that Jesus Christ truly is? See, the reason that Jesus came into the world and the reason that Jesus would eventually go to the cross, the reason that Jesus climbs into the boat with the disciples at this exact moment is precisely because he loves them. And he cares for them. He loves these guys more than these guys would ever know. And the reason that Jesus comes to you and he comes to me and he says, come to me, follow me, believe in me, trust in me. The reason that Jesus suffered the wrath of God against your sins and my sins on the cross in our place. The reason that Jesus fully forgives you of your sins, past, present, and future. The reason that Jesus walks with you every single step of the way through every single storm of your life is precisely because he loves you. He cares for you. And he always will.
there could be some of you here this morning and your life right now is just kind of rocked with this lack of assurance as to whether or not God truly loves you. Whether or not you've been completely and totally forgiven of your sins and and whether you belong to God for all of eternity. Maybe that's the battle that you fight. Maybe that's the storm that's raging inside of you right now and you battle against this every single day. And if that's where you are right now, I just want to take a moment right here just to throw you some life jackets. I want to speak the truth of God's word into your life. Greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Listen, friends, this is your Savior. This is your Savior right now who is calling out to you with so much love and so much grace and so much compassion in this moment, and he just longs for you to cast aside all of the so-called solutions of this world, to cast aside your own pride, cast aside your own ability, cast aside your own strength and your own wisdom, and to throw yourself upon him. He wants you right now in this moment to stop trying to fix everything yourself and then go to him as if he's the last resort. He wants you right now in this moment to cast all of your cares upon him. Why? Why? Because he cares for you. And he loves you. And he always will. Even when the storm feels like it's too much to bear, get to Jesus early. I find it very intriguing to see what happened when the disciples actually called on Jesus. Take a look at verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Here's point number three. Three ways for me to have faith in the face of fear. Fear Jesus for who he is. The disciples saw something happen that day that has never been repeated since. Jesus says, peace. It's the same word as silence. Imagine Jesus just standing up in the middle of that storm and saying, be quiet. And then he says, be still. That phrase, be still, literally means be muzzled. It's almost like if you or I were to take our hands and put our hands over top of a dog's mouth to stop the dog from barking, we're muzzling the dog. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's muzzling the storm. And you've got to understand that when Jesus stands up and says these words, it's not like the waves all of a sudden go from like 15 and 20 feet high down to 10 or 11 feet, down to 6 or 8 feet high, and then down to 4 or 5 feet, and then over the course of a few hours after that, everything just kind of gradually settles down. That's not what happens at all. Instead, Jesus stands up in the middle of all of the chaos, swirling around them, and he says the words, and boom, it happens. Can you imagine for a minute being in the boat? When Jesus stands up and does that, imagine you've got a seat right beside the disciples, and there's Jesus up at the front of your boat, 
and there is chaos, and there is storm, and the wind is blowing, and the waves are pounding, and the water's falling. You can barely see your hand in front of your face. And there's Jesus at the front of your boat. He stands up, and he says, peace, be still. And instantly, your experience goes from this picture to this picture. And it happens like that. Awesome. The infinite power that Jesus has to calm the storm is the same power that he has to speak the word into your life and bring your storm to an end. Jesus goes on into verse 40 and he looks at the disciples after all of this has happened and and he says to them, verse 40, why are you so afraid? I kind of chuckle at that question. Like Jesus has just done what he's done And now he looks at the disciples and he says, hey guys, why are you so afraid? Like, really, Jesus? You're asking me why I'm afraid? Have you still no faith? The key question here for Jesus is, in the face of the storm, and specifically for the disciples in this moment, in the face of death, would they be filled with fear or would they be filled with faith? See, the problem here is that for everything that the disciples have seen Jesus do up to this particular point, from healing the sick to delivering the demon-possessed to telling people that they've been forgiven of their sins, for everything they've seen him do, there's absolutely no category that they have for what is unfolding in front of them right now. And sometimes the very same thing can be true for us. We see God do all of these great things for other people. We see the provision and the protection and the help and the healing, and we praise God for what he's done, and rightfully so, we should. But sometimes we doubt that God could do the very same thing for us. And it seems that's where the disciples are right now. They've seen other people in their storms, and they've seen Jesus deliver other people from their storms. But now they are in a storm of their own, and Jesus is right there beside them. And they're still not convinced that Jesus could deliver them. And listen, friends, what's it going to be for us? If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you have seen God answer other people's prayers. You've seen Jesus deliver other people in their storms. You've been delivered from your own storms, right? You've seen the faithfulness of God in your own life, but now you're going through a storm of your own, or maybe you're coming out of a storm of your own, or maybe you're about to go into a storm that you don't yet see. But regardless of what the circumstances might be, the question remains, will you be filled with fear or will you be filled with faith? We see what happens next in verse 41. Mark says, And they were filled with great fear. And there it is. And they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That phrase, great fear, in verse 41 can be translated, They feared with a great fear. In other words, they were blasted by fear in this moment. And sometimes we have this tendency to look at the fear of God or the fear of Christ as only this reverential, awe-inspiring kind of fear, and it most certainly is that. We cannot look past that. But we have just as much of a tendency to look past the fact that this could be the actual emotion of gut-wrenching fear in this moment. How many of us are uh, afraid of heights? Hands up. How many are afraid of heights? A little bit. Okay. So it would be like all of us, me too, be like all of us going to the very top of the CN Tower and, and plastering our face against the glass at the top and looking over the edge. And it's like in that moment, like 
your stomach gets queasy and your legs are like jello and you've got cold sweat and you're dizzy and you know in that moment that you should pull back, but, but you can't. It's, like, it's almost like you're immobilized by fear in that moment, right? You just can't pull back. And it seems that both of these things are happening here with the disciples in this moment. Not only are they absolutely amazed at what Jesus has just done, but it seems that they are almost literally quaking in their first century sandals. They can't believe what's going on here. And this must be the response of sinful people when we encounter the living Jesus Christ in all of his glory. See, that's the problem with so many books and so much teaching that claims that people have died and then they have seen God and then they have come back to life to tell stories about how they just kind of hung out with Jesus or to tell stories about how they can now fit God into this nice, neat human box of understanding. Like, really? Because that is nothing of what we read in the Bible. Abraham encountered God, and he was massively humbled by who he was compared to who God is. Job encountered God for who he really was and was brought to life-changing repentance. Isaiah encountered God in his glory and was immediately brought to a place of his own unworthiness. The apostle John encountered the resurrected Jesus Christ in all of his glory and fell at his feet as though he were dead. And now we get to this passage in Mark 4, and don't you find it interesting that the disciples' greatest fear came when the threat of the storm had been removed? Isn't that interesting? Their greatest fear was no longer of the storm. Their greatest fear was of the one who just calmed the storm. Why is that? If you look through this passage, there's one word that appears three times. Do you see it? It's the word great. Verse 37 a great windstorm arose. The end of verse 39, there was a great calm. And then verse 41, they were filled with great fear. That word great is where we get our English word mega. It means huge, colossal, gargantuan, massive. Pick your word and insert it into there. And so the progression in this passage is that it's going from a mega storm to mega calm to mega fear. And the disciples now are in this place of mega fear. And, and we need to ask ourselves, why are they in that place? Because the storm's gone now, right? Everything's calmed down. They've got what they wanted. Why are they in this place of mega fear? They're in this place of mega fear because they have reached a new level of understanding about who Jesus Christ truly is. And I think that's why they ask this question at the end of verse 41. Who then is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? And listen, friends, that is not simply the question of the hour for the disciples. That is the question of your life today. Who then is this, Jesus Christ? Who then is this, that even the wind and the seas obey him? Consider for a minute who Jesus Christ truly is. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Who then is this Jesus Christ? He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Who then is this? He is the one who, has, who, was, made sin, who was made to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
God. He is our advocate with the Father. He has taken the full wrath of God against our sins on the cross so that the wrath of God against us could be turned into the favor of God toward us when we place our faith in him. Who then is this Jesus Christ? He is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. He has come that we may have life and have it to the full. He is the resurrection and the life. Who then is this? He is greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than David. He is highly exalted by God with the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Who then is this? He is the one who has defeated sin and death and Satan forever. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He is the one who one day will come riding on the clouds and every eye will see him and he will reign forevermore. He is the one who will be the unhindered focus of our worship for all of eternity. Who then is this? This is Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And he is the one who one day will wipe away every tear from our eyes because death shall be no more and neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. Listen, no more storms because he's making all things new. And he is the one who may be coming to you right now in this moment and he is saying to you, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. See, the amazing thing about this story is that this is about so much more than Jesus simply calming a storm and calming the storms in our life. In the Old Testament, the prophets declared that God alone controls the seas and that God's control of the seas was equivalent to his power to redeem his people. In fact, the Old Testament often used water to symbolize the threat of death for example, think of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. They've got the Red Sea on one side. They've got the Egyptian army on the other side. If God doesn't come and part the waters for them, they're very likely about to drown in their attempt to escape. Think even more powerfully, though, of the example of Jonah. In his book, King's Cross, Tim Keller has a very powerful way of explaining this. I'm only paraphrasing what he says. But notice the similarities that exist between the story of Jonah and the story of Jesus here calming the storm. Jonah was on a boat with a bunch of sailors. Jesus was on a boat with a bunch of fishermen. Jonah's boat got thrown around in a storm. Jesus' boat was getting thrown around in a storm. Jonah was fast asleep on the boat. Jesus was fast asleep on the boat. Both the sailors and the fishermen came to wake up the sleeper. Both Jonah and Jesus were told that they were about to die. Both Jonah and Jesus were asked if they cared whether or not they lived. And after the waters were calmed, both the sailors and the fishermen were more afraid than they were in the midst of their storms. It's fascinating, isn't it? So many similarities between those two stories, and yet there's also one very big difference. Do you remember when the sailors came to Jonah and, and they were just frantically trying to survive and they kept saying, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? How do we make sure that we don't die? And Jonah looked back at them and he said to them, you need to throw me overboard because everything that's happening here is my fault. In essence, Jonah was looking to the sailors and he was saying to them, the only way that you live is if I die. Later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus said that one who is greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is the fulfillment of what Jonah was pointing toward. But what makes Jesus different is that he was thrown into the ultimate storm. 
Jesus was thrown into the storm of our sin. He was thrown into the storm of the eternal judgment of God that had to be satisfied. And in essence, Jesus comes to you and to me in that storm that we all face. He comes to you and to me in that storm that none of us can overcome. And in essence, Jesus looks to us and he says, the only way for you to live is if I die. That's why this miracle of Jesus calming the storm needs to matter so much to you and me today. Because this is not only highlighting the power of Jesus to get us through the most difficult times of our lives, but this miracle is exposing our need to be rescued from a storm from which we cannot save ourselves. Tim Keller summarizes it like this. Jesus was thrown into the only storm that can actually sink us. The storm of eternal justice of what we owe for our wrongdoing. That storm was not calmed, not until it swept him away. If the sight of Jesus bowing his head into that ultimate storm is burned into the core of your being, you will never say, God, don't you care? And if you know that he did not abandon you in that ultimate storm, what makes you think that he would abandon you in much smaller storms that you're experiencing right now? And someday, of course, he will return and still all storms for eternity. If you let that penetrate to the very center of your being, you will know he loves you, and you will know he cares. We need the life jackets. Take Jesus at his word, because he can be trusted. Get to him early, because he loves you, and he cares for you, and he always will. And fear Jesus for who he is. He is the one who has defeated your greatest storm. And because of that, we have nothing to fear. Let's pray. Father, I pray that by your grace and by the strength that is in Christ Jesus, that you would help us to take the truth that you have given to us in your word over these past few minutes and and that you would enable us, I pray, to live according to this truth. Father, I pray for your children in this room right now who are enduring perhaps the storm of their life. It's been hard. It's been heavy. It hurts. And so, Lord, for whatever they're going through right now, I pray that you would give them the peace that passes all understanding. I pray that you would give them a confidence in their heart and in their mind that your promises are true, that they always will be, that you are always with them and that you will never leave them and you will never forsake them. God, I pray for your comfort upon those who are hurting. Father, I pray for your conviction upon those who need to turn away from the life that they've embraced for so long and finally turn to Jesus Christ. To be rescued, to be delivered, to be saved from the storm that they are in that maybe they don't even know that they've been enduring. May it be so today, God, that you save them, that you turn them away from their sin and turn them to their Savior.